Amen. Well, guys, would you grab a Bible? And we are in the Gospel of Luke tonight as we continue just making our way, just chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Luke, excited just to see Jesus and to see what He would have in store for us. So hoping you got a Bible and you've made your way to to Luke chapter 18, uh, using that, whether it's physically or electronically, join us in that same invitation to you guys who are online. Hey, join us in this. Have a Bible. And, And long that it would be a space where through this evening, God would just be meeting you in His Word and meeting us in this space. And so we really want to head towards that, and so that is a goal and an aim. Let's take one more moment and pray. I'm going to lead, but I'm hoping you'll do the same, just asking God to make His Word clear to you and what He's trying to say to you understood and that impact to be just met. So with that in mind, let's ask Him, would you join me in prayer right now? Father, we thank You tonight for Your faithfulness. And we thank you for your word. We take this moment as we step towards a study of your word tonight and recognize that your word is unlike anything else in the world. In the midst of of days of so many opinions, your word is truth. And Lord, it needs to be that which changes and affects our lives. Tonight, would you do that? Would you give us the ability to hear your voice and in that, that it would compel us and transform us and change us and draw us to life as it ought to be lived. Life the way that you would have it to be lived. Lord, work that in us. Give us ears to hear what you would say to us. We pray for that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we begin Luke 18 tonight, Jesus tells us exactly what he wants us to hear. It's one of those interesting sections where in the passage it actually announces it out to us that before Jesus even speaks and before he even begins to just kind of share, tells us what he's looking for. With that in mind, why don't you notice it with me? Verse 1 says, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So once more, before words are even put there, the Holy Spirit just brings us into this, and He's telling us, hey, there's something that God is looking for, a place in your life and my life where we would always pray, that He's calling us to a place of persistent prayer. Oh, once more, just hear the way He says it. He says, men always ought to pray, and they ought not lose heart. Now, that's really where he's going, and that's where we want to go this evening. It's an interesting chapter. Luke 18 is an interesting one because it begins with this announcement and a parable that Jesus gives us, and then the chapter ends with a man who is actually just a perfect example of persistent prayer. Now, I want to be very, very clear. I don't want to in any way kind of press this into this mold and say, hey, this entire chapter is all about this, that it's all kind of going there. Nevertheless, I do think there's a Holy Spirit arrangement to it. So that's how we're going to approach it tonight. We're going to talk about this place of persistent prayer, place of what that looks like, and then through this whole chapter, see things that flow into that, and then do our best to make sure we see it's bigger than prayer. It encompasses life itself in many ways, but life itself is in so many ways pictured by the way that we respond in prayer. And so hear me again, right now, this is what Jesus is calling for. He's telling us that this is something that ought always to happen, that he's looking for a place that we ought to be those who are consistently and, and continually praying about this. Doesn't necessarily mean, you know, every breath, although the Bible tells us pray without ceasing, but it has the idea that we're constantly talking to him, we're constantly looking to him. And right at the outset, Jesus not only tells us that that's what he's looking for, but almost tells us one of the reasons we would fail. And he says, because we lose heart. He says that there there becomes something that kind of guts the emotion or guts the, 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 the passion out of that. And so he's calling us into a place that that's something that he's looking for in your life and mine. Absolutely, certainly there. So we begin with it, and he begins telling us, hey, that's what he's going to tell us about, and he's going to tell us a parable. He's going to give us this kind of life story that would picture what that looks like. And it's a parable that many of you guys would recognize. It's the parable of the persistent widow. Hey, why don't you notice it with me? So it begins in verse 2. He says, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, there was 
a widow in that city. And she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards, he said within himself, though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continually coming she weary me. And then the Lord said, did you just hear what the unjust judge said? So you get it. I mean, it's this crazy story. It's a parable that he tells, and I think there's no doubt about it, but I ought to just make sure I say it clearly. This is a parable of contrast. This isn't a parable that's saying, hey, this judge is just like God. No, in fact, it's nothing like God. We find here a judge who's an unjust judge. And he tells us he doesn't even care about people. He says, I don't fear God, and I don't fear man, I don't have any concern in any of this stuff, I don't regard them. And there's a sense of understanding that's exactly opposite of who our God is. And unlike this judge, our God is a just God. There's not anything in him that he ever does wrong. And he's a God who loves us, that he loves each and every one of us and knows us. And so it's not a parable that's explaining to us that this is why this happens. Instead, it's again a parable of contrast. But the point is pretty clear. It's not a hard one to kind of grasp nor understand. Jesus just says it this way in verse 7. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? He says, the point of this is that you should take this as an example. So go back to the story and do your best to imagine it. I mean, here's this judge. He, you know, for whatever reason, he got into power. He doesn't really care, but this lady won't let him go. I mean, she just must show up. Either it's every day or every week. She just keeps coming. How many times must this judge have been like, you know, go away, send her away. I'm just, I don't want to deal with it. I don't care. And then he just begins thinking, you know what? This lady's going to wear me out. You know, it's just, it's going to absolutely, you know, I'm going to give her what she wants, not because I care, not because I, I, I desire to, you know, enact justice, but just by this. And so Jesus says, hey, there ought to be something in this lady's persistence that should mirror itself in our prayers, that we ought to be those who cry out day and night to him that we ought to be those who continually to pray and continually to hold out, even though at times he bears long with us. Now, God answers prayers in his perfect ways, and not always is that clear for us to understand, but understand this, it's never that he doesn't care. It's never that he's not hearing, but there is a sense that he's telling us that there are those seasons, there are places where we're going through things. He says, here's what you ought to be doing. You got to keep praying. You just got to keep praying. You just got to keep praying. That parable holds out this reality of kind of what that looks like. But what Jesus says next helps kind of press how vital or maybe lacking this might be. Catch it as as he tells it to us there in verse 8. He says, I tell you that he, that is God, will avenge them speedily, never the last. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? It's a powerful question. Will Jesus, when he comes back, find people with faith? Now, you've got to get it. In this moment, what he's talking about is this kind of faith, the kind of faith that is the faith of this persistent widow who's just praying and won't let go and keeps praying and keeps doing it. And what Jesus tells us is this interesting opening question that in a sense says, when I come back, will I find anybody? Will I find anybody? You know, how, will I find anybody that has that faith? Now, that's worthy for us just to let it kind of settle into our hearts for a moment. Because I think we're close. I think we're close to Jesus coming back. I think he's, we're close to what that looks like. And he seems to anticipate that in these last days that this kind of thing would become more and more rare. Now, if that's the truth, then what we need to hear is how it might not be us. What I mean by it is this. See, I, I recognize that we would be here this evening, and for many of us, we would think, 
oh yeah, they need to hear this. <laughs> There's like other people, like they should really be praying. But you know, I'm, I, I pray. I, I mean, I, I'm not one. I definitely, so he's not talking about me, but I want to ask you, what if he is? What if he is talking about you? What if he is talking about me? See, we live in days that for many Christians, if we pray about it, that's almost exceptional. Uh, you know what I mean? That if we actually pray about something one time, I mean, we're like, I prayed. You're like, I actually did it. Yeah, we actually prayed about what was happening, and, you know, we actually did, and, hey, I did pray. You know, I did. I did, you know. But this isn't that. This isn't, you know, kind of the check mark, yeah, I prayed about this. It's like, I'm keep, I'm, you know, I'm still praying, and I'm still praying, and I'm still praying. And, and you know, it hasn't happened yet, so I'm still praying, you know, and, and I'm not going to stop praying till, till God either tells me not to pray or, you know, God works, but I, I'm, I'm going to be someone who has a persistency about that. And what I'm wanting to tell you is I think it's scary to actually wonder. I mean, I wonder if there's anybody in this room, myself included, who would say, oh, yeah, that's, that we really are there. I, I, I have this you know, sneaking suspicion that probably we give ourselves way too much credit you know, thinking, hey, we're doing better at this than we really are, when really somehow we, we might have lost what this is, that we might have lost this place of, of what it's looking like. And, and so he's calling us to it. He's calling us to this place of saying, hey, you, know, you should be somebody who, who's praying, and you're still praying, and, and, and you keep praying, and, and, you, and you, you've prayed about it, and you're going to keep on pressing because there's something that you know that, that you, you need to see, you know, just God work in. And you didn't just pray about it one time, but your life is found in, in a consistent way where you are always praying. And you're not going to give up. You're not going not to lose heart, as Jesus said. So that's what we're needing. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at, is looking at a place of saying, hey, that ought to be where we are, that you and I are meant to be a people who are always praying, and, and he's certainly calling us to that. Well, with that as kind of a, an opening, just kind of salvo into our hearts, he then gives us another a number of accounts and stories that kind of flow into this, that help diagnose some of the reasons that we would lose heart, that we would fail to, to, to pray like that. And so let's keep reading. He says in verse 9, he says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So kind of quick, kind of catch it again. He lets us know what he's talking about. There's a bunch of people he's talking about here that really they trust themselves. They, 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 they have confidence in their own kind of standing and their own righteousness, their own ability to that, and it actually causes them to be arrogant. It actually causes them to despise other people. And so he just pictures it. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, kind of the lowest of the low in that society. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even this tax collector, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. Wow. So you just need to pause and just think about this for a moment, because it's actually, I mean, you probably have seen it before. I know I've walked it through many of you guys with this before. It's a really funny picture. I mean, so you got this guy. I mean, here he is. And so here's this Pharisee, tells us that he is this. He's this religious guy that in, in that culture is this. He's very eye-focused, which we'll talk more about in a moment. You know, and, and he's just, he thinks he's okay. And so he's gone into the temple, which is supposed to be the place of God's presence, supposed to be the place that is there, and he's praying. But when Jesus describes it, Jesus says he's praying with himself. Uh, it's, it's our way of saying, you know, Jesus would be looking at it, and he's like, he's actually just talking to himself. You know, he's not actually talking to me. I mean, you know, he's in the temple. It looks like he's praying, but he's not actually talking to me. It's not, he, he's not actually, he actually is just sitting there talking to himself. And, and I just want to tell you, that's kind of a crazy description, but it's a scary one. It's a scary one to think, okay, so here's some that are not praying, that might not be praying the way they ought to. And part of the problem is even when they go through the motion of prayer, 
He's like, actually, you're just talking to yourself because he's not actually looking to me. I mean, you're not actually putting your confidence or hope or your trust in me. And again, it gives us a little bit why. Jesus just tells us he actually trusted in himself that he's righteous. Kind of feels good about himself. And, and you can hear it in the way that he prays. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Again, verse 11, which is funny. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collectors, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. You hear this guy's like, I'm just so glad I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm glad I'm such a good guy. I'm, I'm just really glad. I mean, God should be happy that I'm here. I kind of feel, you know, and he, and he feels superior to others around him. He's kind of looking over at other people. And the scary thing is, I just want to tell you, this is probably much more common than any of us would even like to admit. Even sometimes where we might be, coming to church or any other place, like, I'm just you know, I'm glad I'm not like these other people. You know, I'm like really doing good. And God's probably like happy to have me here, you know, kind of deal. And but this guy, not. And, and he's just in this place that has him self-confident, self-reliant. But then we switch just portraits. We move from that man to the tax collector. And it tells us in verse 13, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So now you have these two vignettes. You have this Pharisee who's, who looks great on the outside, who's, who's self-confident, and you got this tax collector. He kind of gets close to the temple, but he's afraid to get too close. I mean, he's just, he's aware of his own brokenness, and he beats his breast. And it's a, it's a picture of brokenness. It's a picture of, of just feeling deeply, you know, where he is. And he just says, God, God, be merciful to me. God, God, be merciful to me. You know, sinner, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one that is in that place. Wow. Well, there's a couple of things we need to kind of make sure we get here. I mean, there's definitely going to be a sense of this guy's humility. There's definitely going to be a sense of his knowing his own weakness. But if we don't pay attention to a couple of things, then we might actually, you know, miss part of the, the great weight. When Jesus uses this, he says, you know, here's this tax collector, and he's asking for mercy. The word that's used here for mercy is not the normal uh, word that's used for mercy. Many times the, the word uh, in Greek has the idea of compassion, of kindness. That's not this word. It's not it at all. It's a word that is translated a number of places in scriptures as propitiation. In fact, let me just give it to you. It's given it to us in Hebrews where it talks about Jesus and says, therefore in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful, and that's the normal word for mercy, which is compassion, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, but to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That is to, to, to deal with things so that their sins could be removed from them. He, he's going to be the one that pays the price in that sense to remove them and, and bring them into good standing. That's Jesus. He's the one that had to become like this so that he could make that. He could bring this place where we could be made right with God, where, where he, he could look on us who are sinners and, and we could have access to him through all that that is, that there would be a space of what that looks like. and It would be a space of where that would go. Well, see, that helps us because we find this man here and that's what he's asking for. He's coming before God and, and recognizing, I have no business. I have no standing in of myself. I know who I am. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. That's where I am. And I'm asking for something that you would deal with me not by what I'm deserving, but I need my sins propitiated. I need, I need mercy. I need that which you would offer, which God has offered to us in His Son. That's an incredible place of approach. That's a, it's a place of both recognizing who we are in a world that is so often not in that space, in a place that we would say, okay, I know what I am. And God, I, I, I just want to bring myself before you and ask for your mercy. So much we could say here, but I'll just try to say it briefly. We live in a world where for so many people to say, hey, I'm a sinner, Many wouldn't do, or they would only do it with, you know, kind of 
clauses after it. I'm a sinner, but I'm better than others. <laughs> I'm a sinner, but they made me do it. You know, I'm a sinner, but you know, really, if you gave me a chance, I wouldn't be as bad as I am. There's so many places that we, instead of just coming and saying, no, I am exactly this, without any explanation, without any excuse, without any kind of, I'm, I'm just a sinner. And yet that's a powerful reality that is honestly true. And that approach is the approach that we're supposed to have, that we come before God not on our own standing, but on the standing that we have in Him, that on the standing that would be there for, for who we are, that it would be at the standing of, of, of recognizing that it's in Christ that we come and the only way that we can come. So we watch that whole thing, and Jesus, as He just explains it, He says this, Verse 14, he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He says, here's the simple deal. You know, those who exalt themselves, that's not going to go well for them. They're going to be humbled. Those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. That's a biblical principle held all the way through the, the Scriptures, held all the way there, that there's a place of recognizing what that looks like. And I just want to tell you it's true. It's true in life. It's true in salvation. There are those who, like this Pharisee, think, hey, you know, I deserve this, or I'm not a bad person, and God should treat me well, and this is not going to work out well for them. The only way that we can be made right with God, that we can be justified, is to recognize we're in a sinner in need of a Savior, and God is that salvation, that it's Christ. That's the only way that works. But let's just take that a little step further. Because in this context, we're talking about prayer, and I want to just say it to you in a simple way. That's the only way real prayer works. True prayer, effective prayer, is prayer in Jesus' name. It's the prayer that we come to God the Father in the name of Christ, not because I deserve it, not because I'm coming on the basis of, God, I really deserve this, like, like you owe me. Like, I deserve this, and this is what I'm demanding based on who I am, or, you know, what, it's this approach where it comes and saying, God, I have access in Christ. I have an access that brings me into you, and I come humbly in that sense. I come recognizing who I am and who you are, and it becomes a powerful reality, both of the way we live, but one more time, it really is becoming one of the things that helps us to pry saying it in a different way. One of the things that gut your prayer life is your self-righteousness, your arrogance, that you think better about yourself than you ought to think, that you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And even that kind of poisons this place when even you pray, it's, it's not really connecting. And so he's telling us part of this whole place is for us to come in and say, God, I, 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 I humble myself before you. I, I recognize who you are. And it's a wonderful connection because God tells us. He says, here's what happens. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. That there's a place of, of that entrance draws us into a place where God says, hey, that's who I lift up. That's where my strength is poured out. I can't bless your pride. I can't bless your arrogance. But that place of, of coming humbly becomes an incredible place of what real prayer looks like, a place where that would draw us to who we are. And certainly that becomes one of the things that got us of praying, just a more self-righteous standpoint where we're missing out what that would look like. But then Jesus continues. Verse 15 it says, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called, to, to, called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Let's put it this way. There's a need of childlikeness. There's a need in that whole place. We watch this whole scene and it's worth just kind of quickly kind of walking our way through it. It's a funny thing in some ways. So here are these parents, they're bringing their children to Jesus, they, they seem to be infants and, and just wanting Jesus to bless them, and the disciples get in the way, and they, they in many ways try to stop it. Now I have this like silly sense of humor, 
So, you know, I kind of picture myself kind of being in heaven someday and someone, you know, coming up to the disciples. Remember that day where you tried to hold back the kids? You know, it's like, you remember what that was like? And they're going to be like, oh, I mean, I remember that day. I mean, it's like, it's one of those days where they probably thought they were doing something good. They were not. They're missing the very heart of Jesus. And so the disciples kind of get in the way and they're like, hey, Jesus is too busy. He's too important. You know, this is, this is not something he does. And then Jesus just speaks up. It says, Jesus called to them. That's the, obviously the parents who are bringing the children. And, and he said, hey, let the little children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of God. He invites them. He invites them and tells the, the you know, disciples not to forbid them, not to hold them back, not to in any way hinder that. And there's much that's in this understanding. There is an understanding that Jesus says that's who the kingdom of God really kind of meets. Of such is the kingdom of God. Again, he says it in verse 17. Surely I say to you, who does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. There's a sense of him looking at this and saying, hey, this is you know, where we, we bring them in. This is what we do. And the simple practical reality is in the kingdom of God, most people who you know, come into a relationship with Jesus come into it young. I mean, we could go over the stats. I could tell you what many of you guys know. The older we get, the more unlikely it is that people give their lives to Jesus. I mean, with every, you know, decade, if you look at it, the number of people in, in, every, in the age categories that will surrender to a fresh relationship with Jesus gets harder and harder with every decade. That when most could be kind of, you know, put into the category, most who surrender their life to Jesus do so young. And that's just powerful. So it's a reality of saying, okay, there's something we don't want to get in the way of. There's something that, you know, is to value this heart that was happening, you know, even right now in the back of our building is not um, just to facilitate what's happening in here. I mean, it could be the other way around. You know, we might be in here so that God could be at work back there, that there might be, you know, more happening in the kingdom of God in, in the younger generation than maybe in the older. And there is a powerful reality of just understanding that. Now, Jesus, again, tells us it's not just the children. There's a sense that everybody who comes to Christ has to come to Christ as a child, has to come into that. Surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter in. I mean, if you don't come the way a child would come, you would not even be able to enter into this relationship with Jesus. So that's how we get saved. I mean, that's this childlikeness that for every true follower of God, that's the road that we go down. But it's not just the beginning. It really is meant to be a part of our lives. So that in our context tonight, in this idea of thinking about persistent prayer, can I just add this and say, it really is equally necessary that one of the things that facilitates a true prayer life is a child likeness with God. Jesus had already talked about this, by the way, when he had been encouraging prayer earlier. Back in chapter 11, he had told them, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? He says, so, you know, here you have a parent and a child. He says, if, if you have this good relationship, and obviously, again, that's kind of understood. And there's a child like, hey, I really need something. And, you know, would, would, the, would, the, would the parent be vindictive or harsh or cruel in the midst of that? He says, no. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? There's a comparison here of saying, you know, that in this, and in, in, in this context, Jesus has just been saying, hey, you ought to pray. You need to seek. You need to knock. You need to ask. You need to be people who are crying out to God. And in that, He's calling us to this place of a child lightness, to a place of, of really this recognition of dependence and humility and asking. So, one more time, God is asking, God is pulling us, He's telling you and I to be a people of prayer, of consistent, persistent prayer. One of the things that guts us of that is we lose that childlikeness. We become too smart for ourselves. We begin to think that, you know, well, I don't even know, I don't even know if it works, or, you know, how does that whole thing work with the sovereignty of God, and how does this, you know, God, and, and we just try to figure out things that are kind of way above our understanding, and instead of being just simple, like, I'm just, I'm just asking my dad. <laughs> I'm just, just going to keep pleading with him like a child would ask his father. I'm just going to keep coming. And somehow we, we, we lose that, and it becomes one of the things that actually rob us of the heart of prayer. 
that loses this childlike dependence. And again, if you can kind of catch it, that childlike dependence is so beautiful because it is so ignorant. I mean, you guys know this, right? I know some of you have kids in the back right now. Or some of you know people have little kids. And if you started to go back and ask them, it's like, okay, so, you know, how does the gross domestic product affect your future right now? You know, and I'm kind of curious what you're thinking about, you know, what the stock market was happening today. And they'd be like, what? Like, I, I mean, they don't have any concept of what's happening. They don't have any concept of what's in the world. They're just like, well, my dad takes care of me. My parents, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm living my life in this place and I don't understand it. I don't understand how the economy works. I don't understand how, you know, sci- I don't understand all of that. I don't need to understand it. You know, I, I live in a dependent relationship that isn't based on my, you know, ability to comprehend everything that's in front of me. And that's a huge problem. In this generation, it's a huge problem. Knowledge is increasing in exponential ways, biblically prophetic in many ways true, that we have access to information more than others have had, and sometimes that kind of gets us into a place of just really thinking of ourselves too much or our understanding too much. And so there's a place of just understanding that in the midst of being called, in this this midst of calling to persistent prayer, there is a need that, hey, there's no way to approach the kingdom of God. There's no way to be, just part, be in the kingdom of God, both the way you enter and the way you participate in it, except this childlike dependence. Wow. Well, it's right from there we get the next section that equally kind of touches into the same reality. Verse 18, now a certain ruler asked him saying, good teacher, what shall I do that I should inherit eternal life? Quick pause, you guys get it. I mean, here's this man who is, some of your you know, translations will have even a heading, the, the rich young ruler, kind of a story that many of you know, and it's going to deal with his money. Now, it begins with an interesting concept, which is much bigger than we have time to go into in, our, in just the kind of the overview study that we do on Wednesday nights. But the ruler comes to him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. So they have this quick interchange. This man is like, hey, I think you're good. You're a good teacher. And she's like, well, why are you calling me that? Because there's only one that's good. Clearly understanding. Jesus is not saying he's not God. He's actually saying he is God. And it's his way of thinking, you know what? If I'm good, then I must be God. If there's goodness in me, then it has to be bigger than that. But this man has a concept of God that is somehow kind of watered down. Now, not only is he able to call Jesus good without fully comprehending who Jesus is, his concept of goodness also poisons the way he views himself. So Jesus kind of asks him, just kind of speaking into it. He says, well, you know the commandments. Verse 20, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Kind of walks through you know, some of the Ten Commandments and says, here's you know, what God's telling you to do. And the man responds, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus, when he heard this, he loved this man. That's helpful to understand but it's also one of these places to, to just kind of, in the midst of goodness, to understand this guy thinks too much of himself. I mean, he, he, he thinks he's really, now truth is, maybe compared to others, he might be. He's like, I, I've always tried to do those things. I've always tried to be that way. But he doesn't recognize his own brokenness. He doesn't recognize, you know, all that's happening there. So Jesus presses in, and he does so in a very interesting way. Verse 22 says, so Jesus heard these things, and he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was rich. Jesus tells him, okay, you know what? There's only one thing you have to do then. Give up everything you have. Sell everything you have and come follow me. Get rid of everything, get everything that's there and and become my follower. Now, quickly, just kind of processing this through, this is not the means of salvation. This is not something that's universally held across Scripture. There's no way of saying, okay, the, everybody who gets saved has to, you know, kind of, you know, surrender your bank accounts and get rid of everything. That wouldn't be biblically untrue. It'd be historically untrue. Jesus is just pressing into where this man is, and the simple thing is he trusted his money. That the thing that he's there in this place that money has become that thing that has become his God. And so Jesus explains it to his disciples. He says in verse 24, 
he said, when he saw that he had become sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those are incredibly troubling words. I mean, should be for us as Americans, because I think you could, if this just is taken as true, we, we, we might say how hard it is for Americans to get saved, how hard it is for those who have things to get saved. Now, it's not that things are bad. It's not that money is bad. But the thing is that we can trust in them. That, you know, that he says, when we have these, these riches, when we have, when those who have riches, how hard it is for us to become the one that does that. Now, the disciples are, are just shocked by this, and they ask in verse 26, who then can be saved? And, and Jesus just says, hey, these things which are impossible with men are possible with God. I mean, men can't do this. God can. He's the only one who can, but it has to be supernatural, and it is, and gloriously God is doing that, and it is true in all salvations. But again, please understand, this is true. So this is true in salvation, how hard it is. At times when people have money, when that becomes their confidence to find themselves putting all their confidence in God, it becomes many of those places that could be that. Now I have just a, you know, a sense that man, if the man was able to do it, it's like, okay, I can give up all my money. Jesus could have said, well, that's fine. You can keep it because he doesn't have you. But the issue is it does have him. Now, key in salvation, there are some that, quite, quite honestly, because they have things in this world, don't find themselves recognizing how much they need Jesus. And, and they're, they're, what they have keeps them from Jesus. And if that's you this evening, in this room, online, watching, just in the space, that somehow you just don't recognize how desperately you need Jesus, it could be because you are so blessed materially that you lack the understanding of how desperate your need is. And I hope what even through this, what would seem impossible with men, what God would do and just save. But it doesn't just end there. Again, that's the road that enters into this course of salvation, but it becomes a part of our life. And I just want to say it's the same thing. That there is a sense that God is calling us to be a people that live in dependence upon Him, that we live praying always and not losing heart. One of the things that causes us not to pray is because we have things. And those things can so often be our trust. That one of the things that actually keeps us from crying out to God is, is because we have other means. Uh, we have other ways. Well, you know, we're going to, you know, we got some money, you know, we're trying to make things happen. And, and sometimes that robs us of the place of saying, hey, you know, those are never my heart. And I'm not going to allow what I have to keep me from recognizing you know, it's not me that can supply my needs. It's only God that can supply my needs. That there is a, a reality to, to just longing for that. And I'm telling you, I think it's one of the things that guts us from prayer is because we have this kind of self-ability, like I can handle it, instead of recognizing how much we need him. Now, in the midst of this, the disciples respond, or Peter does. He says in verse 28, See, we've left all and follow you. Like, like hey, we're, we're, we've done what this guy didn't. We've become those who, who have, who've stepped into this. And so Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in the present time and in the age to come eternal life. I mean, he just lets us know, hey, sacrifice that people do put God first, it'll never cost them eternally. I mean, it's a, he says, if those who have, who have recognized that Jesus is everything, who placed their life there, these disciples who did that, he says, boy, it's so much more rewarding. Absolutely true, but helpful. Now, it's from that that we move into this next scene, and the connection to it is kind of an interesting one, whether it's just a timeline kind of thing, or Jesus is dealing with that. It could be that, you know, right from saying this, that Peter and the others, might, he, they might have been like, you know, hey, we're doing pretty good. Look at us. We have kingdom of God stuff. We, you know, we're those who are going to have eternal treasures. And so Jesus then just speaks into this and reminds them of, of, of what's going to be happening. It says, he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man will be accomplished. He will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon they will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. 
So again, Jesus steps into this, and it could just be on the timeline. It could just be, hey, he's trying to communicate where they are and where they're going. Or again, it might be kind of, kind of going against what Peter and the others might have been feeling good about themselves. But either way, he communicates to them, I mean, incredibly clearly about what's to happen. But they don't understand. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. I mean, they just didn't get it. Now, I want to be really, really gracious because, I mean, just the concepts of it were, were beyond, and, and so they're, they're, I'm not in any way accusing or, or saying or anything bad. It's hard to even imagine just kind of grasping the reality of the cross or the resurrection, but it's important to say it's very, very clear. Now, just as an application, again, please hear me clearly. I'm not saying that's exactly what's happening here, but in application, because we're working through this chapter in this way, there is a sense of being those who need to hear, that need to hear Him. If we don't hear what God is saying to us, so often that becomes one of the things that hinder us from praying. It tells it to us this way in Proverbs, the one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. God would say, if you're not listening to me, then I'm not listening to you. And it's not one of those kind of, you know, tit-for-tat things, but in many ways it robs us of that whole place, that one of the things that becomes so important and so key in our ability to pray is to be able to listen to Him, to be able to hear Him. And, I, and I'm speaking to you tonight in a way that I'm encouraging your life as a life of prayer, that I'm telling you God's longing for you to be a person and to, to pray and, and not lose heart, and one of the things that fills that is that you listen to Him that you let his word, that you read his word and say, God, I want to hear what you say. And the interesting thing is that so often fuels our prayers, that the word of God would work that in us, that one of the things that is soon needed is to be those who are listening to him, that we be those who say, God, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and we allow that to respond. Well, that now brings us to the last account of the chapter. Again, it began with the persistent widow. We, we saw this in the midst of that. We saw those who trusted in themselves, the need for childlikeness, those who trusted money, and, and even in the need to hear. But now we get to this one who is this persistent beggar. Oh, we know him from the other gospels, from Mark's gospel. We know his name is Bartimaeus. Here it's not given, but we just imagine it. Verse 35, then it happened. As he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So you get this incredible scene. I mean, Jesus is passing by, the crowds are coming by, and we have this man. Now, there's a backstory here that we could only just try to guess at. I mean, this man who's a, who's a beggar, who's blind, he has obviously heard of Jesus. He's obviously maybe heard in the distance because he knows who this is. Here's the crowd, and they're walking by, and he asks them, you know, who, what is going on? And they say, well, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, which is an incredible concept of him recognizing Jesus as the promised one. The, the promised one of David, the Messiah that would come, that, that here's a man who, it's like, I know, I know who that is, and he just begins to cry out. He just begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And there's much to understand. I mean, in many ways, this is one of these places that he's able to overcome. He overcomes his inability to see these things, overcomes that which would be his handicap, and, and he cries out. He's just crying out for God to rescue him. Then, verse 39, those who went before warned him that, they, that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. The way it's kind of put in the text and even in the language, this wasn't a one-time thing. It's the kind of thing that they kept telling him, like, shh, <laughs> like, be quiet. Like, you're like bothering us, you know, like quit talking. Like, and they just kept saying, hey, you know, just, just stop. But the more they just tried to dissuade him, the more he just kept asking, that he had to overcome others as they were seeking to discourage him and telling him, hey, stop that, quit doing that, quit, quit asking. Instead of responding to that, he kept asking. Verse 40, so Jesus stood still 
and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And there's this beautiful picture. Jesus just stops this whole crowd, this procession that was going on, you know, and, and, and he asked the, this man to be brought before him and asked him, you know, like, what do you want? And the man just asked, like, what do I want to see? I'm just, I'm just longing for this. And there's a, a, a place of him just asking for this. And Jesus tells him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And it's a, a, an interesting term that lets us know that it wasn't just a physical but spiritual work that was happening in them. It's like you've believed and that's worked for you and, and I've blessed you and that your faith is healed. Your faith has brought you into this place of being made well. And immediately he received his sight, verse 43, and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. I mean, it's this amazing scene where you're just watching this whole thing, and it's beautiful. It's this powerful picture of this man connecting with Jesus, being made right with Jesus, becoming one who's following Jesus, who's glorifying Jesus. But one more time, it kind of just lands into where we've been this evening, that there is this space that what he's talking to us about is this place of persistent prayer, that we began with a persistent widow, we're ending with this persistent beggar, and showing us this place of one who did it, who was able to overcome, press in, and just find what God had. So I'm wanting to bring this to you tonight in a way that hoping you can see these things. These are real realities. And the most important part of it is just longing that you would be in that right relationship with God. That if you're here this evening and you don't know Him, or online and you don't know Him, I mean, what would keep you back? Is it your own self-righteousness or what you have, whatever it is? We call you into the only place that you can be made right with God, the mercy, the propitiation that's found in Jesus. But as I'm longing for that, I'm longing for us who know Him, and I just want to bring you back to it. Jesus began this chapter saying, hey, I want you guys always to pray, and I don't want you to lose heart. And then he gave us the, the, the points of it, and then he just said it. You know, when I come back, am I going to find anybody that's like this? Am I going to find anybody that has that kind of faith? And I would like it to hold before you and I tonight just saying, there's a place where God is calling us to be those who, I mean, we keep praying. I don't know what it is in your life right now that is before you, something that you feel desperate or you feel a need. Maybe there was a time you prayed. Maybe, the, maybe you're like, hey, I did pray about it. <laughs> it. hasn't happened yet. And yet there is a space where you say, okay, keep praying. Keep praying. Like, hey, just don't let go of that. Why would you let go of that? And so with that in mind, I'm just going to ask you, I wonder if that's lacking somewhere in your life tonight, if there's a, a lack of persistence, what might it be? What if it's one of these? What if there really is a place that you just trust in yourself, that you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, and it's keeping you from humbling yourself and, and, and casting yourself on God's mercy? What if it's this, this, this failure just to come to God as a child, where your own arrogance, your own just understanding has somehow robbed you of the ability just to ask Him? What if it's because you just, you have means, you have money in the account? But it's kind of robbed you from recognizing that it, that has so limited ability to, to be able to come and God and say, God, I have nothing but you. I have everything I have is nothing. I lay all of it down, recognizing all that I need is in you. This place where, where we desperately need him. I don't know where it might be, but I know this, that for many of us, there would be an honest place of just recognizing something is causing us to lose heart. Something. I mean, Jesus is telling us, he says, like, here's what I want. I want you to be those who are always pray, and I don't want your, your heart to get gutted. I don't want you to, to lose that ability to, to just keep on praying and to keep on asking. And so I hold it to you tonight as both the aim that God is wanting to work in our lives, but the offer that he would seek to kind of just rescue us from those things and draw us into life as it ought to be lived. A life of dependence, a life of recognizing, a life of, of, of looking to God always. And if that would become a part of who you are, maybe again, just to say it, it might make you different. <laughs> I mean, if Jesus is right, few who call his name actually live with such radical 
continuous faith. That when Jesus comes back, he's like, I, I, I just wonder, will I find anybody? Will I find anybody that's this way? And, and the longing is to say, Lord, I, I want to be one. I want to be at least closer to that than I am now. And so let's go down right now in prayer and ask that he would help us to pray. That he would teach us to be a people who persistently pray. That we ought to always pray and not lose heart. Would you guys join me and we'll close with that. Father, we come this evening. I thank you for your word. I thank you for just you showing us the way life is meant to be lived. God, I would begin just praying for any that are outside the kingdom of God right now that don't know you. And one of these realities is actually what's keeping them back. They're self-righteous and they think better about themselves. Or they have money or they trust in their own means. Or they, they just can't humble themselves as a child, and, and ask you to save them. God, would you look upon any right now and just the, the hindrance that would keep them back from salvation, and I cry out for it. I think of what you said, Jesus, that which is impossible with men is possible with you. God, would you do the impossible? Would you rescue? I cry out for those that don't know you and pray for that. But then I pray for those of us who know you, that we would be living out this relationship with you in a genuine way. And that would be clear in our, in our prayer life. That would be us living and praying always and not losing heart. God, I know that that's your aim for us. I know that that's what you designed for us. I know that's the way life ought to be lived. Would you forgive us, Lord, where that's not what we're doing? where we either haven't prayed at all or we've prayed so sparsely, just almost as, a, of course I prayed about it, but we're really not looking to you. God, if there's arrogance, would you cause us to humble ourselves before you? Humble ourselves because you said that if we would humble ourselves, we would be exalted, but where there's arrogance, we would be humbled. God, where we've lost that childlikeness, would you bring us back to that? where we trust in our own riches, would you cause us to recognize nothing we have can do what we need from you? It doesn't make us better, nor does it any way become that. What we desperately need is dependence upon you. God, I'm asking that you would cause us to be a people of prayer. You would teach us to pray, that you would teach us how to always pray. And Lord, where we have lost heart, where something has gutted us, where something has robbed us of the passion, robbed us of the, just the capacity of having a heart to pray always, would you restore that heart? Would you bring us back to a right relationship with you? Just this humble, childlike, dependent relationship with you. God, teach us to pray. I ask that for all of us now. In Jesus' name. Amen.